Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. Fish Fry Friday tomorrow. Come see us. At Incarnate Word, where they have gumbo. We're very excited about that, the menu. We just blasted that out on the uh, the X, formerly Twitter, if you want to follow, at Mark Reardon, KFTK. We'll be there from 3 until 6. Jane will not be with us tomorrow on the roundtable. She is taking a week off. We will miss her dearly. Plus, all the other panelists will have a lot more time to fill because she won't be here. <laughs> I say that with love. Yes, uh, of course you we'll, do. we'll have a great time tomorrow. Uh, the whole gang will be there. Abby, the Hall of Famer, Fred Bottomer, Sue, you're going to be out there meeting yeah. and greeting and eating some fish. So we look forward to seeing people tomorrow afternoon between 3 and 6. And we don't think that there's snow in the forecast, right? Well, well, let's be honest. There wasn't snow in the forecast last uh, two weeks ago Friday either. I think there is some overnight, but it shouldn't be anything. Well, that's what they said last time. All right, Nicholas Wade is with us. He was a science editor way back when uh, for the New York Times from 1990 to 1996. He's written several books, but I, um, I saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal about COVID origins, and he also wrote in the City Journal about some of this stuff on the lab leak hypothesis, and it is fascinating. Nicholas Wade, welcome to 97.1 FM Talk in St. Louis. How are you? Uh, thanks, Mark. I'm fine. I was never, you know, a definitive, this came from a lab or this came from, you know, bad. I, I just was one of those people years ago. I didn't know, but I did think that a lot of the questions were valid. And one thing that really struck me in your piece that was in the journal is, and this is kind of right up my alley with some of the stuff that we cover here with media bias. You said, given the mainstream media's sustained inability to report on the issue objectively, I, I think you were basically saying uh, this, this, what you're about to tell my audience probably is not going to be something that is spread out throughout the country and, and resonate right away, right? Uh, that's uh, right. Uh, the evidence in favor of lab leak has simply been ignored. And the stronger it gets, the, uh, the, the more the mainstream media takes no notice of it. Uh, I think it's hard for anyone to admit they've been fooled for four years, but that's what's happened. So what, can you connect some dots here? One of the things that you wrote about, Nicholas, in the, in the journal is you said, here are some you know, salient facts that have not been clearly reported to um, readers of legacy media, right? Or viewers. That's correct. So what, what, what ha- I don't even know where to start because some of this is very complicated, but you kind of go back to March of 2018, right? Um, yes, that's when um, a, a, a group of um, American and Chinese scientists 
put in an application to DARPA, that's a, a research agency in the Defense Department, to uh, develop SARS-like viruses um, from SARS-1. That was the cause of an epidemic back in 2002, um, before we ever heard of the present epidemic caused by SARS-2. So what, what, why would they want to do that? What were they trying to do? Uh, they were trying to develop um, uh, vaccines uh, against the possibility mm. that the SARS-1 virus or viruses like it might um, sort of become more virulent and and infect uh, soldiers who are in the field. So they hadn't become more virulent yet, so these guys decided to make them more virulent in a lab. And then when they got them, they would be able to make a vaccine against them. It was a totally crazy scheme. But that's what they were doing, and uh, they applied for a 40 million grant to DARPA, but DARPA decided it was too dangerous, okay. and they turned them down. Oh, okay. So our now, Pentagon, our Pentagon turned, that's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, what you refer to as DARPA. So they say, no, right. we're not going to do that. So then what happens after that? Well, it looks like uh, the Chinese team, there's a means of collaborating with the American team, but they're also rivals. The Chinese team then saw the, the chance to go ahead on its own. All it had to do, they had done all the preparatory work for these rather complicated experiments of juicing up the virus and making it more virulent. So rather than lose that investment, all they had to do was get funding from the Chinese government, and they could have gone right ahead with it. So the DARPA grant was turned down um, about February um, 2019. They, could, they, they would have um, been developing new viruses um, by probably about sort of September 2019, right, right. which is exactly when the epidemic uh, first right. broke out. That's so right. this explains both the timing and the place of the outbreak. So you, in, in the Wall Street Journal piece, you, you cite um, a report that was done in 2022 by three biologists, uh, Valentin Brutel, and I might be mispronouncing the name, Alex Washburn, and Antonios Van Dongen. And they, they, I want you to kind of explain what they say. They think that it was generated in a lab, but then their paper comes out and they're just ripped by, you know, other virologists, right? Yeah, that's just what happened. And they had the idea that, that for various reasons, they thought, well, SARS-2 looks to us like a, a synthetic virus. It doesn't come out of nature. It's been made in a lab. So then they thought, well... Uh, if we were going to synthesize a virus like that with the sort of methods of the time, how would we have done it? Well, um, they said uh, uh, it, it's a very, it happens to be a very large virus, a very long bit of um, genetic material. They said you would have chopped it into six pieces. You'd have sent each piece out to a, 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 a DNA synthesizing uh, a lab uh, to, uh, to, to, to get the thing together, and then when the six pieces came back, you would have knitted them together in a certain way. So they said, that's how we think the virus was, was, might have been made. So let's look at its structure and see if we can see the, the sort of joins, the, the seams where the six pieces were knitted together. And they said, yes, we can see the seams. Um, uh, and it looks like the virus was made this, this way with a very specific um, biological tool called a restriction enzyme. Uh, and... And they published their paper, and they gave their reasons uh, for thinking this was what had happened. So they were lab, lab synthesized, right? Yeah, right. So they were shouted down by the um, virological establishment to sort of mock them. Uh, they couldn't get the paper published, and there it just um, uh, sat as a sort of preprint. 
Uh, now, uh, in last month in January, uh, some very important documents were obtained by an organization called the U.S. Right to Know, right. and these were FOIA requests, right? They had to do a Freedom of Information request. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and these these documents, uh, they were sort of planning documents for this big grant to DARPA, and these planning documents said. We are, we are going to synthesize these viruses in six pieces, and we are going to use a specific restriction enzyme, which is just the one these three authors had predicted. So the, the discovery of these planning documents was quite electrifying because the first thing, it, it, it seemed to confirm pretty strongly, maybe conclusively, that SARS-2 is a synthetic virus. Yeah, you even quote in the Wall Street Journal piece, you quote a guy by the name of Richard Elbright, who's at uh, Rutgers. He's a molecular biologist. He said basically that that rises to the level of a smoking gun, that, that information. Right. That's what he said. I mean, it's pretty, it, it's pretty conclusive. And the only thing that stops you saying this is absolutely conclusive is that we don't know the starting virus from which they worked. And, and it's, it's, it's a... Significant yet, the Chinese authorities have done everything they can to suppress any knowledge of the viruses being worked on at this Wuhan Institute of Virology. If we knew that starting virus, uh, the defuse grant proposal tells us exactly how they were going to manipulate it, and this would have, you know, with the right starting virus, would have, this would have produced a virus exactly the same as SARS-CoV-2. Now, even though we don't know the starting virus, I think many people are going to, when they look at this evidence, I think many people are going to say, well, there's enough evidence here to be pretty pretty damn sure that that this virus was made in a lab and it came out of the Chinese half of the, of the uh, DARPA proposal team. Why do you think there is still, because again, I, I, modern journalism, Nicholas, don't even get me started. You may have some opinions, but I don't understand why, you know, this gets shot down as a conspiracy theory from the very beginning. And even now with more and more evidence that is at least, and we've seen people that have come forward and said, look, maybe I didn't believe this at first. Now I'm more open to it. But why is uh, journalism so resistant to uh, maybe the truth here is what I would say. I think um, journalists, science journalists especially, are are very much in awe of scientific authorities. So right from the start, the the cover-up was masterminded by the uh, head of the NIAID, Anthony Fauci, and his boss, uh, Francis Collins. So these guys put their weight behind uh, a very important paper uh, written by a group of virologists, which said, oh, there's no way this could have been made in the lab. So this paper they wrote was completely fraudulent and untrue, but nonetheless, it took a long time for people to understand that. Mm. And it's very hard for, for journalists, if, if the major virologists in a field are saying X, it's very hard for journalists to say no, Y is the case. So the, there was very little uh, support for looking into the lab leak hypothesis. So the journalists sort of went along with this great sort of cover-up very adroitly masterminded by Fauci, Collins, and and the virologists who are sort of into it, uh, and they've never looked back since. It, it then it was politicized. It became sort of sure. political dog. If you're on the left, well, you were against lab leak. You believed the virus right, arose right. naturally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it got broken down that way. But I mean, again, I I, I was just, I just want to know the truth. Like, right. And I think a lot of people do. And I don't hear, you know, and I've read both your pieces in the City Journal and the Wall Street Journal. It doesn't seem like you have a lot of confidence that maybe the truth will be pursued here. 
further? Well, uh, that's very interesting. Um, you know, I think what's going to happen is that is that the, the, the my piece will be ignored. Um, they won't. The other side won't engage with it because the facts are just sort of too clear right now. But the longer it stands unrebutted, the more I think it will become uh, accepted. The accepted view that the the virus did emerge in the lab. So I think that's what will happen. It'll be simply too embarrassing for the mainstream media after having uh, uh, denounced lab leak for yeah. four years to suddenly turn on a dime and say, "I'm uh, we, we were wrong. We got the whole story wrong. We were too biased to." report the objective facts to our readers, and it does now look as if the virus came from lab. They, I don't think they will do that. Um, no, I don't no, anticipate I that. Let, let's say that something does happen where it becomes a little more clear, and let's live in a fantasy world here just for a moment, that the media does report on this, there's congressional hearings, et cetera. If, if, the, if the blame can be assigned to that particular source in a lab, would there be potentially any repercussions for that? Um, well, that's a very interesting point. Um, it, the way I've been thinking about it is, I think I think the primary blame goes absolutely to the Chinese. I mean, it's up to the Chinese to de- decide what standards of lab safety are uh, are required for their work, and they've they failed to do these experiments in the necessary safety conditions. And then beyond that, of course, they did this enormous uh, cover up. So. The Chinese stand definitely first in line for blame, but but the, but we are complicit, I'm afraid, in that we yeah. supported this whole line of research um, for various reasons, not all of which are clear. But I think there's a sort of um, a military biological defense angle here, and that we we wanted to know what was happening in Chinese in the Chinese um, lab, so we sort of gave them all this information so that we would get a, a sort of window into what they were doing. I think that's what's going on. There's no, absolutely no proof of, of that. But in any case, be that as it may, we were supporting this very dangerous line of research of souping up the natural infectivity of, of viruses, which is completely crazy research that should never have started and never should have been undertaken. But for 10 years, it's been supported by the NIH and the and Fauci's agency, the NIAID, and a large number of... Virologists have sort of made reputations by working in it because it's very sort of sexy research to sort of create a new yeah, virus. Right, problem. right. I got you. Nicholas Wade, who's here, was the New York Times Science Center from 1990 to 1996, has written several books and wrote a couple of pieces on this. You know, I'll close with this just because um, it's, it's rather sad. And I go off on a rant occasionally about experts and not trusting experts in this is a perfect example of what happens certainly with COVID and, and what continues to happen. But I mean, this trust in experts, Nicholas, you, you probably come from an era where we a lot of us believed in some of the things that were happening at the CDC or Washington. I don't know that that will ever be restored. Do you? Uh, no, I think this is an almost black eye for the for the scientific community as a whole, though, though I think one should also say that there are many fields of science that are doing dangerous research and that are much more honest and straightforward than the virologists have been. So you can see these other groups alerting to the public to the possible danger of what they might do, all this genetic engineering and things called gene drives. Those scientists have been very open. It's just the virologists that have tried to keep this under wraps and keep the public in the dark and not tell them what they were doing or, or, or to welcome any outside oversight. Those, it's experts who work in secrecy who, yeah. who deserve our distrust. 
Nicholas Wade, thank you so much. This was really interesting, and I hope the um, the story gets pursued further. And, Thanks. Yeah, we'll have you back. Thank you, Nicholas. Thanks, Mark. All right, take mm. care. That's fascinating, really. And he pieces this together. You should. We could put this up on the uh, the X, but it was idea. in the Wall Street Journal last week. Where did COVID come from? New documents bolster the theory that it not only escaped from a laboratory but was developed in one. And if you heard him, he's not. I mean, I think, Sue, don't you get the impression that when we were talking about the lab leak in the early days of COVID, people thought it was some sort of malicious Chinese were using this as a bioweapon, which was always, mm-hmm. I guess, maybe one of the questions. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it wasn't like that. Apparently, we were involved in research, and then we didn't fund that particular research, but they moved forward with it. They were messing around in the Petri dishes. Something happened. Somebody left that lab not being protected, and the rest is devastating, tragic history. And there's even a story about, and, and it's hard to weed through what's real and what isn't, but that Fauci knew that it wasn't that, knew all of that, of course, as he just said, but also that he knew that it, it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't as dangerous as it could have been. In other words, it affected the older and, and made a bunch of money off of uh, coming up with the drugs and supporting that. You I know, uh, yeah, it's I hard know to what, know. I, it is hard to know, but the bottom line is what I just said there at the end. You can't trust, I mean, Anthony Fauci is not someone to be trusted. No. Anybody that's at the CDC right now, we've seen time and time again how they've gotten things related to COVID wrong. And most of the people in this country still don't know that they were wrong, right? Yeah. Because they're not dialed in, unfortunately. Hey, Phil Holloway, he's dialed in on all the Fonnie Willis stuff with the text messages. This stuff is really explosive. Phil's going to get into it next. Plus, I have an audio cut of the day before the hour's up. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseballs and boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. We're still waiting on that judge down in Fulton County, Georgia, to decide whether or not Fonnie Willis will be disqualified from the Trump election interference case and Nathan Wade who is the um, the boyfriend if you will the former boyfriend of Fonnie Willis of course testified a couple of weeks ago with Fonnie Willis and then the other guy that was testifying he was back on the stand a couple of days ago Terrence Bradley Terrence Bradley was the former law partner and Ashley Merchant is the attorney for one of Trump's co-defendants and Ashley Merchant was text messaging Terrence Bradley 
starting in middle of January this year about all these questions. And he was answering in a very different way than he answered on the uh, the stand. Here's an example of that. What did Nathan Wade tell you about the relationship? I recall him stating that at some point they were dating. Uh, I can't tell you what date that was. It was made in confidence. We were in the back of our office. Our offices were the only two in the back. There was no one else present. That is all I can tell you at this time. Well, he said a lot more to Ashley Merchant in a series of text messages. We're going to find out more about that. Phil Holloway has been all over this story. Fox News legal analyst. He's a great friend of this program as well. Phil, how are you this afternoon? Always happy to be with my friends in St. Louis. Listen, this is a big deal, Mark. You know, we've got a... Uh, a pro- top prosecutor in one of the major cities in the United States, Atlanta, Georgia, who, uh, if you believe the evidence, which, by the way, is piling up, uh, you know, it looks like she may have committed a fraud on the court, in my opinion, perhaps even lied under oath. And I tell you, the the danger for her, both politically and otherwise, could not be any greater. I mean, this is – we are in potential disbarment territory, uh, perhaps criminal charges if this thing turns out to – to be true that she's lied under oath. So, you know, these text messages really, really do give us a lot of color and context to see, you know, what's going on and what the basis of this claim was that uh, the affair has started much earlier than they've publicly admitted to. So explain a little bit more about the text messages. You know, the audio that we played, that's Terrence Bradley, the former law partner of Nathan Wade. Nathan Wade was the the boyfriend of Fonnie, although then they, they broke up, right? So that's what the crux of the issue is, is here to a certain extent. But he testified the other day and, and seemingly didn't go as far as even in some of these text messages what they reveal. Is that an accurate interpretation of that? Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. But let's let's keep in mind that in Georgia, these are what you call prior inconsistent statements, and they can be used as substantive evidence if a witness says one thing on one day and another thing on another, that prior inconsistent statement can be used as substantive evidence. And in this case, the substantive evidence revealed in these text messages really shell down the court. It says, quote, do you think it, meaning the affair, started before she, meaning Willis, hired him, meaning Wade? And the response was, and this is in January of this year, the response was, absolutely. And then he offers, unsolicited, the following statement. It started when she left the DA's office and and was judge in South Fulton. And for context, uh, the listeners won't be aware of this, but Ms. Willis was an assistant district attorney uh, under the prior administration. She left the DA's office around 2018 uh, to do other things, including open up a private law practice and become a part-time municipal court judge, uh, all in preparation to to run against the then incumbent uh, in the 2020 election. So here you have the former lawyer, former law partner, and former friend, apparently, uh, of Nathan Wade telling Michael Roman's lawyer that it started before Fonnie Willis even hired Nathan Wade. So setting aside the issue, Mark, of whether she lied or whether she could be disbarred or anything like that, under the law, if a judge believes that a witness has lied about one thing or is not telling the truth, then the judge can... Uh, discount and give no credibility and no weight to anything else they say. And in this case, he doesn't have to believe her 
testimony when she said that she reimbursed Nathan Wade in this untraceable cash. And so now, if that's the case, we're back to square one. We're back to a financial conflict of interest, a personal financial stake in the mere existence of a case by a prosecutor is a conflict of interest and it's grounds for removal. One of the things I think I'm confused about is why were there typically you don't have like text messages that are revealed in a case. So why was there so much communication via text message between this attorney and, um, you know, the law partner, Terrence Bradley? That that's confusing to me. All right. So in the interest of full disclosure, I've known Terrence Bradley and I've known Ashley Merchant. I've even known Nathan Wade for going on 30 years. Right. So we're all in the same legal community of criminal lawyers in the metro Atlanta area. And so what I can tell you is that it's not uncommon for lawyers to collaborate when, if I'm investigating, if, you, if you're my client and I need to investigate some facts and circumstances, you know, I, I will do that by talking with whoever I need to talk to. And if it happens to be a colleague, then so be it. What these text messages show, it shows that Ms. Merchant was working on behalf of her client. She was trying to investigate, you know, what she the, the rumors or whatever that she had been hearing about the, the affair, and she was trying to investigate it. And so she was turning to people that she knew who she thought might have information they could bring to bear on it. And it looks like the two were collaborating together to help her uh, draft and file a, an accurate and complete motion to to dismiss and disqualify the DA based on all of this. And so um, he's he's literally telling her what witnesses to talk to, what witnesses to subpoena. In fact, Robin Yurdy is the witness who came to court, actually her own Zoom court, and she testified under oath that the uh, – and she's friends with Fonnie Willis. And this all took place, you know, the visits and all this at her condo. She says she saw them hugging and kissing and all that back as early as 2019. And she said that under oath. She was a witness that was identified or helped to be identified by Terrence Bradley when Ashley Merchant was investigating the circumstances. So this is quite a departure from what you see in these text messages, fast forwarding to what we saw on the witness stand. So uh, I don't know what happened. I don't know what the reason could be for uh, him backing up a little bit on his testimony and not testifying on direct examination as as expected. But at the end of the day, she got the information in that she needed, and almost in a way it, it, it's, I think, arguably more effective because you've got it in writing and you've got it being stated very clearly in these text messages. And as I said – these these are substantive evidence that the judge can use to base his ruling on. Yeah, let me let me ask you a little bit, Phil, about um, one specific message. So at one point, Ashley says to Terrence Bradley, "Do you think that she is still going to deny deny the relationship?" He says, "No." And this is on the 14th, or I'm sorry, the 16th of January, just a couple months ago. Too many people saw their interactions. Bradley says, "Me too." I think they admit it. That's what Ashley Merchant says. And then Terrence Bradley says, "How much was Cross paid in the other special prosecutor?" And she says, "Cross two fifty, Floyd one fifty. What what does that mean? Is that significant there?" You know how the uh, part of what Ashley Merchant did is she attached contracts and information. She also filed you know open records requests. She's she's identifying what the issue. You know, is Nathan Wade being paid more? than the other special prosecutors? Is he getting preferential treatment? This is all part of her investigation into the you. circumstances okay. there. And it's important to note that Nathan Wade also, uh, excuse me, Terrence Bradley also had a contract because he was partners with Nathan Wade. And uh, it, it came out in court the other day that the contract to, to, do ser- to provide legal services to the DA's office, which by the way, is extremely strange. Prosecutors' offices just don't 
they don't work on a private contractor hourly fee. You know, Jack Smith is a government employee full time. He he gets a paycheck, a salary like everybody else. But this, so this is very strange. But the contract for services to Mr. Bradley was brought to him, he says, by Nathan Wade. And Breitbart is out doing some pretty good reporting, and Breitbart is basically making the case that. Uh, during the transition and during the relevant time periods, the real decision maker on hiring and firing was none other than Nathan Wade. So uh, it's all kind of coming full circle. So in these text messages, when you dig into them, it's interesting because, you know, you know these players, as you indicated, Phil, but Nathan, uh, I'm sorry, Terrence Bradley and Ashley Merchant, they they seemingly have a really good relationship because at some point, you know, she even says, look, um, I got to put you on the stand probably. I'm subpoenaing uh, Chris Campbell and Nathan's office stuff, but I'm probably going to have to put you on the stand. He goes, I'm okay with it. And she says, it's my hope they do the right thing before then. He says, you're my friend. I trust you. They will not. They're arrogant as F. She thinks she won the other day when she didn't have to be deposed. And that was funny he's talking about there, right? Yeah, it was. And there's another text message where uh, Ashley, sort of towards the beginning, she's getting ready to, to launch this missile, so to speak, at the district attorney. And she says, I'm nervous. And, uh, and Terrence, he says, he says, well, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you're you're one of the best lawyers I know. Go be great. Uh, you know, it's it's very collegial, very collaborative, and uh, it's it's really quite striking to see the contrast between the testimony in court and the uh, and the text message thread. All right. So then, how? And I, I apologize if I'm repeating questions here, but then how does that get kind of worked out in court with the judge? The differences in the tone, and then I guess the overall question, Phil, is what's next in all of this? Well, tomorrow they're going to be having, you know, the closing arguments and additional, you know, issues that may need to be taken up by the parties on this. Ultimately, the judge is going to have to decide, you know, is there a conflict of interest? And if if so, what's the remedy? Is it disqualification? But there's a bigger issue. They've also asked for dismissal. Let's not forget that. If there is, in fact, a conflict of interest, he could toss the whole thing. Now, this is a big decision. And I've been thinking about what he might do on this. And I was speaking with a colleague of mine today about this who made a very good point. I wish I had thought of it first, but basically, and I agree with him. And he says that, you know, most judges wouldn't allow lawyers to get into this uh, and to go down this road this far, unless the judge didn't already kind of believe something really shady was going on. And let's not forget, the judge used to work at the Fulton DA's office when Fonnie Willis was an assistant DA. Um, and so he knows how things go. He knows these people personally. And, you know, it might very well be that the judge has, has said, look, I, I'm kind of thinking that something shady was going on here. We're going we're gonna to flesh it out. He, he said something the other day in court that's interesting that makes me think he might rule uh, against the DA. He, he says he wasn't even sure if he needed to even have a hearing on the cell data evidence because he, he suggested that he might be able to make a ruling without it. So he's not going to yeah. rule against Donald Trump's legal team uh, without letting them put on their evidence. So this suggests he might be ready to rule uh, in their favor. And then let, let's say that that happens. Then as far as perjury charges or anything that would follow, what's the determining factor or who's the determining factor there? Uh, well, uh, as far as what's to come next, it, look, if she's, if she's disqualified and the case still exists, in other words, if the judge doesn't dismiss it, the Prosecuting Attorney's Council of Georgia is a state agency that has to make um, up its mind whether and who to appoint to, to fill in or to take over. But that's not going to work because if, 
if she is disqualified for a conflict of interest, in other words, the case is so rotten to the core that it was void from the very beginning because of all this, then anybody who takes over the case as a, as a substitute or fill-in prosecutor, whether it's a DA from another county or whatever, they're going to have to start over, and nobody wants to do that. There's a there's an part of this investigation involved Burt Jones, our lieutenant governor in Georgia. Uh, she wanted to make him a defendant in the case, um, but she had donated and, and, and campaigned for his political opponent during the last election, where he was running for lieutenant governor. And because of her support for the opponent, another judge disqualified her from uh, investigating Burt Jones. And they referred it to the prosecuting attorneys' council, and to this day, nobody has been appointed to pick up that torch. So I think that it may die on the vine if it's left as an orphan case. On the other hand, if the judge uh, dismisses the whole thing, then we got to go through the appeals process. Phil, you've just been killing it on this story. Uh, I mean, obviously, your local connections really paying off here. We'll see what happens. The intrigue continues. This has been, to me, it's been fascinating, and I think a lot of people are following along, and you've been able to connect the dots better than anyone out there. So that's appreciated. Well, I appreciate you. That's nice of you to say. I'm happy to help anytime, and I'm sure we'll talk more. Take care, Phil. Thank you. You bet. Audio Cut of the Day is coming up. All right, I have an Audio Cut of the Day coming up. Another reminder, Fish Fry Friday. We'll all be out at Incarnate Word in Chesterfield. Come see us tomorrow. We've got a live Reardon Roundtable. I meant to tell this story yesterday. It was in the Washington Post. Uh, Dave Strom, who is a frequent guest, wrote about this up on hotair.com. They ran a story about an experimental program. I think we have something along these lines in St. Louis that Tish kicked off in the Board of Aldermen, but the numbers are not quite this extreme, so bear with me here. In the District of Columbia, they gave 132 single moms $10,000 in a lump sum or $900 monthly payments. $10,800, actually. No strings attached, right? Hmm. All 132 mothers had to choose whether they wanted 12 monthly payments or the entire amount. Guess what they chose? The entire amount? The entire amount. 75% chose the lump sum, which was better, the story says, for them, for those also receiving government benefits for whom monthly payments from the pilot were more likely to be flagged as additional income, Hmm. potentially affecting their eligibility. Anyway, so they went back after a year, and they talked to um, a bunch of mothers, right, that that were affected by this or, you know, took part in this. And then there were a couple of people that, you know, spent money on diapers and stuff like that. But here's Kenethia Miller, 27, who um, had missed the application deadline but submitted her paperwork anyway, and she made it off the waiting list. She was a stay-at-home mom when her third child, Nazir, was born in the summer of 2022. Her two-bedroom apartment is subsidized. She has temporary assistance to needy families, which is TANF, as her only income. Her rent payments are $120 a month, food stamps, WIC. So she's, you know, she's involved in a lot of the government programs, and she's got two older children, ages 5 and 8. She says, groceries last us the first three weeks of the month, then it's trying to figure out the last week of my benefits. It lasts, but it cuts close. So she gets sent the $10,800, and she says, some of it I just left alone. The other side is I wanted to go blow it. I wanted to have fun. My kids got to experience something that I would never have been able to do if I didn't have that money. So she took a five-day, $6,000 trip to Miami, um, Joined by the children's father, there was a boat tour that exposed them to million-dollar homes and luxury yachts. Her kids went to a dinosaur museum, saw animals in Florida's swamps they had never seen before. She um, went to Benihana. Uh, she treated herself to some you know, new makeup and uh, massages and things like that. And 
she uh, she tweeted. She said, do you, do you know how good I look in this picture? I didn't have to look like a working stressed mom. Now, I'm not without the empathy of saying to a mom or a family, I tell my daughter this all the time when she's able to do things that are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Like, not all kids that do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, when the mom says, my kids will probably have never opportunity to do this, I, I get that. And, mm-hmm. I, and I emphasize. But mm-hmm. think about the amount of money that she blew. Mark. And, and I don't think it's just, by the way, I'm not just picking on a poor person because I think even someone with means, if they're presented with the option, they'd probably blow the money too. It's but not, it's yeah, just it's free money. It's unfortunate because there was an opportunity here to stretch the family. But think yeah. about $900 extra a month is almost like triple her income. Yeah. So she'd have food for the end of the month. Now, I get that that's not how people really work all the time, but wow. That was a rather revealing um, revealing story for sure. Let's do this here. Playback ready. Now, the audio cut of the day. Um, have I told, before I get to audio cut of the day, I just wanted to ask, I don't know if the group knows this. Did you know that I'm writing a book? Uh, wait, uh, this Uh-oh. happens uh, now and again. Are we really writing this one? Well, I have a title picked out. Okay. okay? okay. The title of my book is called Black Urban Rage. Huh. Yeah. Well, I came up with that because of this. Okay, just so you know. I, I was I'm I'm a thinking man. Tom, we'll start with you. Uh, why are white rural voters a threat to democracy at this point? You would think, as we pointed out, looking at Joe Biden's background and Donald Trump's, that that the opposite would be true. Yeah, these are two guys who have written a book called White Rural Rage. Picking on people in the flyover states, mainly, I think. I mean, we lay out the fourfold interconnected threat that white rural voters pose to the country. First of all, and we show 30 polls and national studies to demonstrate this. We provide the receipts in Chapter 6. They're the most racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay geodemographic group in the country. Second, they're the most conspiracist group. QAnon support and subscribers, election denialism, COVID denialism. So just in case you're not keeping up here, if you live in a rural area and you're white in particular, you're freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. You're, you're nuts. And you are the problem that is threatening this country, according to these two idiots. Scientific skepticism, Obama birtherism. Third, anti-democratic sentiments. They don't believe in an independent press, free speech. They're most likely to say the president should be able to act unilaterally without any checks from Congress or the courts or the bureaucracy. They're also the most strongly white national and white Christian nationalists, and fourth, they are most likely to excuse or justify violence as an acceptable alternative to peaceful public discourse. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of negative factors yeah. about, about this this demographic. Ha, 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 Mika, Mika. You know, that's why my book, Black Urban Rage, is going to talk about the myth of hands up, don't shoot, and I'm going to talk about the riots that took place and the millions of dollars in businesses that were destroyed. Can you even imagine if someone wrote a book called Black Urban rage, which, by the way, is pretty representative, and I'd say more representative of what's going on in this country as opposed to white urban rage. I say this all the time about my people that I go hunt and fish with, my good friends in mid-Missouri and Howard County, and I've suggested that media types take some time, and they go from New York or L.A. or wherever they are, and go into a rural area and meet these people. They're some of the most generous, kind-loving people that you'll ever meet in your life. And are some of them crazy? Well, let me just say this. They're no more crazy than the people that are on the St. Louis Board of Aldermen, like Megan Green and some of those nutbags 
who believe in defunding the police and all this other stuff. So that, by the way, was, as you know, MSNBC putting that nonsense by these two guys on the air. There was part of me that didn't even want to highlight it just because that's the attention that they demand. But that is absolutely sickening. And by the way, I hope Joe Biden in this administration keeps down this path, making fun of the so-called deplorables. How did that work out for you last time? Get more at 971talk.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 